Luke has long chapters in terms of the divisions that uh, those who've translated the Bible have made. So we will pick up our reading in verse 54 of Luke chapter 22, remembering that the Lord's Supper has been established by the Lord Christ uh, in the midst of a great deal of arguing and confusion on the part of the disciples. Christ then went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he pleaded with God that if it would be possible, the cup of this wrath which he was to drink might pass from him. And yet submitting to the will of his Father, not my will, but yours, be done. And then the mob arrived with Judas at the head. And Christ, having been so betrayed, was arrested and taken to the court of the, the high priest. And that brings us into verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a servant, certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then, after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Let's pray briefly once again. Lord, we too are hearing from the mouth of Jesus of Nazareth. We too are hearing his words. We too are seeing this truth. We too are, are sitting and watching as this trial takes place. Lord, bring us, we pray, to a present sense of what is taking place here, that we may feel the force of it in our own souls and respond in a way that glorifies your name and honours your beloved Son, in whose name we plead. Amen. Amen. 
the vice of the wicked is closing on Jesus of Nazareth. We see things on a human level. We understand that there are divine operations, but we are plunged by Luke into the immediacy of this situation. And as Luke brings us face to face with these sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ as the cross draws ever closer, Luke wants to emphasise for you two particular things. The identity of Jesus of Nazareth and the innocence of Jesus of Nazareth. And you'll see those two things coming to the fore over the course of this and following sermons if God spares us. There are really two trials We've already said that Jesus has been questioned in the night, but for the Jews, that's not legitimate. It has to be done during the day. And so the first of the trials now is this one of which we're reading. As soon as it was day, they bring him before this Jewish council, this Sanhedrin. This is the official daylight meeting where they now are able to condemn him. And then there's a second trial, because remember that these things take place in the days of the Roman Empire, when Judea is under Roman government and occupied by Roman soldiers. And so however much the Jews may hate Jesus, they cannot simply proceed without a Roman sentence. And that also follows. And do you remember what Psalm 2 says? That both the nation... And the nations, the people and the peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles will gather together against the Lord's anointed and say, let us cast off his bonds. That's what we're seeing fulfilled here. The people, the Jews, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And then the Romans as the representatives of the nations of the world in their great empire. This is what Christ had in mind when he said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He seems, remember, to be entirely under their sway. But we've been reminded that he is doing the will of his father. And again, that we must keep sight of as we see this vice titan. For our Lord is at the centre of the divine will. He's not being carried along contrary to his own wishes. Yes, there was a human desire that he might be spared these things, but there is also a determination to do the will of God. God in heaven is not scrabbling here to come up with some kind of plan B now that plan A has been messed up. Nothing here is going wrong, even though great and gross wickedness is being done. And at the heart of it all, is the Son of God, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, who is trusting and obeying with every breath, with every word, at every step. He is now humanly isolated, betrayed by Judas, abandoned by the disciples, denied by Peter. He comes to his own, and his own receive him not. And so here we trace, first of all, the brutal treatment that he begins to receive. The main question that the Sanhedrin, that Jewish legal and spiritual council, bring against him. The stunning answer that Jesus of Nazareth gives 
under these circumstances. The stunned inquiry that his answer provokes. The open acknowledgement of his identity that he makes. And the angry response of the Jews. The brutal treatment is revealed in verses 63 to 65. And it may be effectively a summary of what was taking place on and off through the whole night. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. The assault is made on the whole being of Jesus of Nazareth. We presume very often that there are perhaps guards or or soldiers or the high priest's servants who are engaged in this. But it says the men who held him, perhaps members of the Sanhedrin themselves, in their antagonism, they want to get their hands and their fists on him. In modern warfare, there's a whole division called psyops, psychological operations. It's a recognition of the fact that uh, you're not just fighting against flesh and blood, but that you want either to win minds and hearts or to destroy them. One of the reasons why uh, some of the Second World War munitions, for example, when the the so-called doodle bugs came down in the Blitz, they howled as they came. Designs that are meant to strike fear and terror into your heart, even as they do damage to material. And Jesus then is subjected to assaults both in his body and in his soul. They blindfold him, probably put a bag over his head. That's good for their conscience. It's a lot easier to abuse someone that you can't really see. And they strike him both with fists and with words. Now, I don't know how many of you have been struck in anger in the face. Maybe a fight at school. Maybe a life that you once lived that you don't talk about very much. You know what it's like to brace yourself when you see the fight, when you see the punch coming in. You've got your hands up and you're ready to wrestle or strike in response. Christ's hands are tied behind his back. Christ has a bag over his head. All he can hear is the shuffle of feet and the voices nearby. And then a blow rains in. His lips split. The bones perhaps crumble. The ears swell. The eyes begin to get puffy and closed. Perhaps the nose cracks. Blood flows from his mouth, from his nose, from his ears. The cuts in his face as adult men mill around him and from time to time lash out with their fists so that without knowing where it's coming from, without any opportunity to prepare or to brace, the Lord Jesus Christ is taken to pieces by these men. And as they strike with their fists, as they mock him, as they beat him, they mock him also. Prophesy! You're the prophet of God. You're the man who knows what's going on. Who hit you that time? 
And who was it that time? And what about this one? And what about this one? Do you know what's going on now, Jesus of Nazareth? Can you tell us what's happening now, O prophet of God? It may be that that itself is the very blasphemy that Luke describes. Or it may be that they add more to it. Now, Christ is fulfilling prophecy. And Christ has prophesied just this. We read at the beginning of our service the language of Isaiah chapter 50. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Psalm 2. The nations shall set themselves together against the Lord and his anointed, trying to shake off his government. But not just the fulfilment of prophecy more generally. If you turn back just a few pages to Luke chapter 18, verse 32, listen to what our Lord himself has said. He will be, this is the Son of Man, the Son of Man will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him and the third day he will rise again. And they are now beating him and spitting on him and shaming him and mocking him and saying, you call yourself a prophet. And Christ might have said, this is exactly what I said would come to pass. It reveals his identity and it declares his office. Their abuses are actually validating the very claims that they are mocking. tell you what I think is terrifying that he does know exactly who strikes him he is God and man as the judge of all the earth Christ knows what takes place in every heart and from every hand now why doesn't he dodge why doesn't he strike back? We have to be so careful here. Sometimes we speak of God's providence as almost some impersonal force. Well, we, we just have to put up with these things, don't we? Oh, good Christians just grin and bear it. This is not some kind of stoicism, a grin and bear it mentality. This is submission to his Father's will. This is what is needful. This is what must come to pass. You have language... Peter speaks in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 21 and following. To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. Brothers and sisters, note this. Leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. How easy would you find it under those circumstances to hold your tongue? What kind of anger might rise in your heart, to some extent even righteous indignation? 
And yet this isn't the Lord Jesus just putting up with it. This is the Lord Jesus Christ accepting what God has ordained as part of the process by which he will save his people from their sins. And in his submissive suffering, he is, says Peter, an example to me and to you. That when we are reviled, we should not revile again. That when we suffer for the sake of God, we should bear it patiently. And now he is brought before the Sanhedrin in verse 66. It brings us to the main question. So this has been going on perhaps through the night. It is out of these eyes that the Lord Jesus looked at Peter as he is dragged before the council. As soon as it was day, the cock has crowed. Peter's gone out. He's weeping bitterly. The elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, they gather together and they lead him into their council saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. That's the main question. Now, does their treatment up to this point suggest that they are pretty confident about the answer? If there's any possibility that Jesus of Nazareth is God's servant, God's anointed one, you don't spend the night beating the Christ, do you? So it seems quite clear that this is not a trial in the truest sense of the word. Part of the problem is that the Jews do not understand who Messiah is and what Messiah must be and do. Most of them have this notion of a, a saviour who will come and throw off the Roman yoke. Most of them want a man who is, who is glorious. They want a king like King Saul was at the beginning. A man who's head and shoulders above everybody else. A man who's handsome. They, they want a Hollywood hero, whatever the equivalent would have been. This is sort of Marvel Avengers ter territory. Um, six and a half feet tall with shoulders this wide and gleaming teeth and glowing swords who lead the fight against the foe and sweep all before them. What do they expect? What should they expect? As they look upon the bleeding face of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, they're, they're not actually asking a question. They're looking for a reason to condemn him. They're looking for an excuse to kill him. But the question is so important. If you are the Christ, tell us. It's one of those occasions when perhaps there's more truth being spoken than anyone there apart from our Lord himself realised. This is the vital question for everybody in this room, everybody in this community, everybody in this nation. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ of God? You need to answer that question this morning as we read this history. Is this Jesus the Christ of God? Is he the one who has been sent from heaven to save his people from their sins? Is he truly the Lord's anointed? Now, what's vitally important is you understand the frame of that question. You need to appreciate what's being asked. The Jews, they don't really even understand the language that they're using. I want to know, do you care? Do you understand? Do you want to get this right? Do you appreciate what's at stake if Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Christ of God? Who is this man? 
What has he come to do? That is the difference for you this morning between heaven and hell, between life and death, between light and darkness, between hope and eternal misery. Are you the Christ? If you are, tell us. And our Lord Jesus responds. If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now, I want you, in as much as you can, to set before yourself the face of Jesus Christ as he answers this question. You may not have, have seen his face. Perhaps you should be thinking of a boxer at the end of 10 rounds. Now bear in mind, this is a man who's had a bit of Vaseline on the cuts and some ice applied to the bruises and he's been wearing his mouth guard. And at the end of the fight where two grown men have been pummeling one another for the last however many minutes, he stands up and you can see the marks on his face of the punishment that he's received. No ice for Christ. No breaks between the rounds. No mouth guard to protect his teeth. No trainer in the corner to apply some temporary relief. Perhaps you can still hear the mockery in their voice as this bruised, battered, bloodied Nazarene stands before them. So, are you the Christ then? And out of those swollen lips and out of that bloodied face, the prophet of God answers. If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the son of man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. The stunning answer exposes their hypocrisy first of all. You see, the problem with these men is not a lack of evidence. It is the attitude of their hearts. If someone is gripped by unbelief, then it doesn't matter how often you tell them the truth, they are determined not to believe. This is not a serious inquiry. This is what they call a kangaroo court. You see, Christ's whole life has testified that he is the Christ of God. You can read it also in John's Gospel, for example. The witnesses that he has that testify of him, that he is truly the Son of God and the Saviour who comes into the world. Everything he has taught, everything he has done, the sinless life that he has lived, the great gifts and blessings he has bestowed, the teaching that has proceeded from his mouth. All of these things have declared that he is the Christ of God. But they don't want to know. They don't want to believe. They resist and they avoid. And Christ says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. You are refusing to accept what is true. And in fact, if I ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Remember how he challenged them before about David calling his Lord, Lord. Or John the Baptist, was his ministry from heaven or was it from men? And you've got the Sanhedrin, these same men, they say, well, he can't answer him. 
If we say John's ministry was from God, then we'd have to say, well, why didn't, why didn't we listen to him? If we say from men, the people will get angry because they think John was a prophet. What is Christ saying? You're not really bothered about an answer. You don't care about the truth. You are marked by unbelief. You will not have the truth. You don't want the Messiah of God as he is. You want the Messiah you would like. You think of the catechism question about repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ and God. Coming to God by Christ as he is offered to us in the scriptures. Lots of people are happy with a Christ that is something else or something less than the one who is presented to us here. The Jews would have looked at this battered man and said, a Christ like this, this is God's hero, as it were. This is the deliverer of the nation. Again, if you take what Peter said about us learning from Christ's example, it's worth remembering that there are many times for God's people, perhaps sometimes especially it feels painful when it happens amongst the church, when the issue isn't what is true. The issue is what people want to believe and who they hate. There comes a point in a lot of such situations where the truth doesn't matter anymore. It's already been decided what guilt is and it's already been decided what the outcome should be. My friends, we need to make sure that we understand these kinds of dynamics and that we are committed both to truth and to righteousness in the way that we deal with questions of what is real and true. Here then is Christ. And the question isn't what is real and what is true. The question is who do they hate and what have they already decided to believe? If I tell you, it won't make any difference. You will by no means believe. If I also ask, you will by no means answer or let me go. But that's not all he says. He exposes their hypocrisy and he declares his supremacy. Hereafter, from this point on, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now again, look into the eyes of the man who's saying that. Look at the body and the face of the man who stands as a criminal on the brink of being condemned with a swollen head and blood running down. And he says, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now, where does our Lord get this language from? Well, he seems to be drawing it from several particular places. He gets it from Daniel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. The, the Son of Man who comes and stands before the Ancient of Days. And he gets it from Psalm 110, verse 1, which, remember, he's already used with these Jews. The Lord said to my Lord, what? Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Christ has already used this language. Christ has already employed this kind of terminology. What is the Lord Jesus doing? He's painting his own portrait with colours from the Old Testament. 
He's getting a brush and he's dipping it onto the pages of Daniel and onto the pages of the Psalms and onto the pages of Isaiah and into the pages of the other portions and he's sketching out his own picture and portrait. The person, the Son of Man, this one who comes as God's true representative. The posture that he has, he is seated. It's a place of triumph It's a place of a completed work. And you've got here as well, not just the person, not just the posture, the place. He's going to be at the right hand of God. This is the place of honour. This is the place of majesty. This is the place that is highest of all. And you've got his power, the power of God. That's where he sits. That's what he represents. That's what he brings. That's who he is. And from now on, says this bloodied Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. This is the language of resurrection and ascension. This is the prophet of God who is speaking. He can see beyond what is taking place at this trial. He can see further than they can see. This bruised, this battered man, this one who's about to go and die under Roman condemnation on the cross in Golgotha, this man is the judge of all the earth. This man is the one who will rise again in glory and will be put in the highest place. This is the one before whom every knee must bow. This is the one of whom every tongue must confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember what he said when he prophesied. He will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Christ has said, this is phase one. Fearful as it is, it is not the end. From now on, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now, on one level, you can then understand, can you not, the stunned inquiry that follows. Are you then the Son of God? Is that really what you're saying to us? That they can't believe their ears. On the one hand, it's just the unbelief. He's ramping this up. We've asked him, are you the Christ? And he's telling us that he's this son of man who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's making himself equal with God. That's what he's claiming. You see, the Jews now think he's playing into our hands. At this point, God was to them very much remote and distant, not just high and lifted up, but but unattainable. It was more, perhaps we might say, more like Allah than the Jehovah of the Bible. And now Jesus is saying, yes, I am above men and I am above angels. I sit with God in the highest place. I am that Messiah and I sit at the right hand of the power on high. And the inescapable conclusion, these Jews know what our Lord Jesus is claiming. You're saying you're equal with God? You say that's where you belong? You're claiming yourself to be the divine Lord? 
They know Jesus isn't bewildered. They think Jesus is blasphemous. That you, being a man, make yourself God. This pathetic Nazarene, this man with his hands behind his back, this man who's had a bag over his head, this man who's bloodied and bruised, this man is calling himself the Son of God. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. And perhaps there's a bit of you that reads this and says, Are you then the Son of God? How does Jesus respond to that? He says to them, Out of his beaten face, You rightly say that I am. The phrasing is interesting. On the one hand, it's an open acknowledgement of the truth. On the other, he seems to draw back from their idea of what they think the Son of God and the Christ of God truly is. He seems to be saying, you've confessed it, but you're not convinced by it. The words have come out of your mouth, but you don't really know what they mean. It's true, but you have no sense of what you say. Now, some of you may have spoken to Jehovah's Witnesses on your doors, but they love this phrase and others like it. They, they interpret this as if the Jews said, so are you the son of God? And Jesus responds, well, that's just what you think. That's not what he means. What he means is from your own mouths you have declared it. And it's quite possible at the very least that when he says, you say that I am, that having been accused of making himself equal with God, he is declaring himself using the divine name, the I am that I am. And it's no new claim that he makes. Remember what's been said from the very beginning. Here's Luke chapter 1 and verse 32. He will be great, will be called the son of the highest, 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Or chapter 3. Verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Jesus as he came up out of the water of baptism. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter has just denied him. Peter had confessed of him. You are the Christ of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they had seen a glimpse of of his glory. This is where Peter buckled. Are you with him? Do you follow him? Are you a disciple to that master? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm nothing to do with him and I'm nothing to do with them. Christ is challenged. Are you the Christ of God? Are you the very son of God? You rightly say that I am. Now, Christian brother and sister, what of you? How do you publicly own and testify of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying that every conversation we has, have has to involve some kind of theologically rich and accurate description about the identity and activity of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, two distinct natures, one person forever. But are you willing boldly, openly and readily to testify that the man of whom we are reading here this morning is the Christ of God and the Son of God. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And you almost want to put your head in your hands at this point and say, do you realise what you are saying? Their response is one of rage and glee. Well, he's condemned himself out of his own mouth, but can you actually believe what he said? And yet on another level, what further testimony do we need? We have heard this from his own mouth. The prophet of God says, I am indeed the Christ of God. The Son of God says, I am the Son of God. The question on one level is perfectly true, but it has been fatally misunderstood by these Jews. The Christ of God stands before them. The Son of Man is in their midst. God's incarnate beloved one has come into the world to suffer and to die. And they blaspheme him and they mock him and they scorn him and they beat him. And their rage and their glee, the God of wisdom, love and power, 
is now using as a means to a fulfilment of the very prophecies that they are denying and raging against. And so you have to see on the one level this grievous human activity. This is that Acts 2 language. You took him by wicked hands and you crucified the one that God had made both Lord and Christ. And on one level you're looking then at what Christ does as the vice of wickedness tightens upon him. And on another level you're seeing and you're hearing God's own testimony from the lips of his son and in the pages of his book. The son goes as it was written of him. The prophet goes as prophesied. And all their mockery, all their scorn and all their unbelief will not stop him going to the cross and it will not stop him receiving the crown. Everything that they can do to keep God's saving purposes from coming to pass, this hour, this power of darkness, it cannot overcome what God has said and what God will do. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And that's as true for you sitting here this morning as it was for the Sanhedrin 2,000 years ago. His claims require a decision of you now. Who is the man who stands with his body increasingly battered and bruised? Who is the man who speaks before the Sanhedrin? Who is the man who has been born in this way, who has lived this life, who is suffering these sufferings, who will die this death? Who is this man who has spoken as he has spoken? Who is this man who has worked as he has worked? Who is the man who has performed these mighty miracles? Who is the man from whose lips have dropped these golden truths from heaven? Is he the son of man who sits at the right hand of the power of God? Is he the promised Messiah, the saviour of sinners? Is he the eternal son of God who took flesh and blood, suffered and died, rose again on the third day and ascended up to sit at the throne that belongs to him? Is he the one to whom every knee will bow of those in earth, those under the earth and those above the earth? Is he the one of whom every tongue will confess that he is indeed God's Lord and Christ? And you are making a decision now. What was the judgment of men, wicked men at this point? He deserves to be crucified. What was the judgment of God? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my Christ. This my promised saviour. This the beloved of my divine heart. This the one who will lay down his life and rise again in triumph. Now, where do you stand as you consider this Christ? You have heard it yourselves from his own 
mouth. Will you judge with the wicked? Or will you hear the truth of God? There's a consequence to the decision that you are now making about Jesus of Nazareth. Because from now on, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. I'm asking you in one sense to make a judgment concerning him. But I'm warning you that he will sit in judgment over you. This is the Christ who will come in his glory with all his holy angels with him to sit on the throne of his glory. This is the God who is going to call before him both the living and the dead. The men who beat him and mocked him will stand before him. The Sanhedrin who blasphemed with rage and with glee, the Son of God will stand before the Son of God. You will be there. You will stand before him. And you have only two possibilities today. You will stand before him as a denier and as a mocker, or you will stand before him as a worshipper and a follower. Now understand the absoluteness of that distinction. Don't sit here this morning and say, but I'm not mocking him, I'm not denying him. What further testimony do you need? You've heard it yourselves from his own mouth. Jesus of Nazareth has spoken words that are written down here so that you may know that he is the prophet of God. He is the Christ of God. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is the savior of sinners. And if you leave here today saying, no, he's not, then you are denying Jesus Christ. And you are mocking his claims. Or you can go believing. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes. You can see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. You look at the man bearing shame and scoffing rude. You look at him suffering, bleeding, dying. You see his beaten face. You see the blood already dripping down his body. You think of what lies ahead and the treatment he's about to undergo at the hands of the Romans, the scourging and the crown of thorns and the the beating and the kicking and the spitting and the accusing. You think of him as he hangs naked before the world with the blood flowing from his hands and his side and his feet. Who do you see? I see my Christ. I see my Saviour. I see the glorious Son of Man. I see the incarnate Son of God suffering and dying for sinners like us. Do you see him there? Do you see him as he is? He tells us. He shows us as he goes to give himself for us. Who to you is Jesus of Nazareth? Can you say with the faith that God gives, he is the prophet, he is the priest, 
and he is the king of my heart. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is the Christ and my redeemer.